I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. I believe we're all very familiar with this portion of text. It's a text that we are always, not always, but are occasionally acquainted with it, especially during the Easter week. It is referenced as the Passion Week. But prior to the Passion Week, something took place. Something occurred in, in the house that Jesus was in. It is in during this period of time, according to Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9, it reads as followed. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, let there be uproar from the people. Everyone say pause. And the reason I had you say that is because it is not intended for us to continue just to read without fully understanding that now the writer is going to transition to another circumstances or another event. And now all of a sudden, he paints first what is taking place in the background. I will make more note in reference to that throughout the message. But I do want you to notice that there is a pause between verse 2 and 3. The scene has changed. The scene now goes to while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leopard, as he was reclining at a table, a woman, not given a name, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard or perfume, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this perfume wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarios and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you, whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say unto you. Whoever the gospel, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Again, another pause, a transition. The writer wants to make sure that you now make a transition, a transition from the background to the present. Now he wants you to also take into consideration what is also taking place while all this event is taking, taking place. Then Judas was one of the twelve went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them, to them. And when they had heard, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Oftentimes we read a portion of scripture and oftentimes we read it as if we were reading any piece of book, but in actuality we need to take time and look at it. Sandwiched between these two events, sandwiched between the background of what has taken place, of the conspiracy and men also that Judas has already accepted money and to betray him. Between these two is an event that stands in memory of the, of the death of Jesus Christ. I am one that is a stickler for details when it comes to scriptures. I want to make sure that I fully understand what I'm reading without just taking the time and read it. I am a stickler for details. Matter of fact, I have sometimes the only details that bother me are those details that are not related to the Word of God. They bothered me. I was, in a, I was at the hospital about three weeks ago. My son was in the, uh, he had rushed to the emergency. He had a gallbladder uh, surgery done. But as I sat there, they came in there, and they are so detailed. 
The man has been in pain for 24 hours. He just wants relief. Get him into surgery and relieve him of his pain. No, they begin, what is your name? What is your social security? Where do you live? And I'm sitting there, you know, how, uh, you know, does, is there any uh, uh, diabetes in your family? Is there, and I'm sitting there, the man has been in pain for 24 hours. Get him in there and cut him open. But details are important. They are so important because they want to make sure they go in for the right organ and not come out with something else. That has happened. If there's any in the medical field, I have nothing against you. But I have heard they've operated in the wrong, in the wrong knee. They said that was not the knee. It was the other one. Now the person walks around like this. Details are important. And so, therefore, if they're important in the medical profession, if they're important in the legal profession, if they're important, they must be important in Scripture as well. And so, therefore, we must spend time on the details because if we don't take time in the details, then, therefore, we will not absorb or receive the full counsel of God that God desires for us to understand. So, therefore, we begin, first of all, in the first two verses. We are mentioned, or it is mentioned, it is the Passover celebration. Three words that describe the Passover celebration. One of them is remembrance. In other words, they are remembering their inheritance. There's a lot of, a lot of people that have gathered together. They are remembering their inheritance. They are remembering that they are the people, the chosen people of God. Not only that, they are reliving their liberation from Egypt. They are reliving that occasion when God sent a final plague, the death angel that came forth and said, if I do not find... If the angel does not see the blood on the doorpost, it will go in there and kill the firstborn. That is what they're doing. They are remembering their inheritance. They are reliving that, that night of liberation when they walked out of Egypt after being enslaved for 400 years. But not only that, they're also recollecting the messianic hope and the expectations of deliverance from a foreign oppression and its economic misery. They're looking for a better future. And so therefore they would gather and celebrate this Passover on a cheerful moment. This is the atmosphere. That is the celebration that is taking place. That is the mindset of the people. It is important that we understand that that is the mindset because this plays into the role of the background of which this event takes place. There's cheerfulness. People are laughing. People are having a good time because many are gathered together. They're in celebration. They're worshiping the Lord. They're giving thanks unto the Lord. But not only is it cheerful, it is also very crushing. Crushing because 200,000, approximately 200,000 zealous pilgrims would come into an already populated Jerusalem of 85,000. Not only that, there was sounds and smells of hordes of animals. Sacrifice. All of this. In addition, it was a time of controversy. There was much controversy taking place. There was a threat of an outbreak of riots, a possibility, because every time you get 200 Jews together that excited, they're about to go to war. And so they were very nervous, so nervous that the high priest and the temple are already walking around in nerves and on pin needles, wondering what's going to happen. The Roman government, the Roman governor moves for that period of time from Caesarea to Jerusalem and he brings along with him troops because he wants to make sure if there's an outbreak, he wants to be there. 
So therefore, they know that any slight provocation or provocation or that may take place could offset an uprise of a mob. That's why I don't like mobs. I don't like to hang around mobs. They're crazy. That's why I wait until the last day to go to the rodeo because nobody wants to go anymore. There is no mob. That's why I accept any tickets to any sport event because they're giving them away because they don't want to go to that game. I'll take them. I don't like mobs. That's why I don't go Christmas shopping because I don't like mobs. And after all, those are the periods of time that I have lost all my children. All of them, I lost them. But I found them. Shucks, I wish they'd have stayed lost by now. That's how Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. They forgot about it. It was such a mob. And there was in the middle of this mob, in the atmosphere, there was a conspiracy between the Jewish leaders to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. That is the background in the first two verses that you read. All this is imperative into understanding the message today. It is that backdrop. But before I move on, I want you to notice one thing. Those two verses give the appearance that Mark has mentioned certain incidents that are threatening the stability of God's plan. It looks like it's on a downward spiral. Looks like it's going, not, it's about to go out of control. But let me tell you, there is no human power structure that can prevent God's plan to happen. This is a word for some of you. You may be in a downward spiral. You may feel that your life is out of control. It is not out of control because God is still in control. And one thing we can learn at this very moment, that while all this is taking place, Jesus sits down and he has fajitas, tortillas, Frijoles, arroz, gloria, Dios, amen. I just wanted to know if y'all were listening. He's not worried about all this that is going on. Why? Because he teaches us one very important thing that when you think that your life is on down, is on a downward spiral that it is going down, 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 you need to take a note from Jesus. You just trust in the will of the Father. He said everything is in God's hands. I don't know what you're going through right now, but I'm here to tell you, just trust. Just trust the will of the Father. You're saying, but you don't know I don't have a job. Just trust in the will of the Father. You don't know what's going on in my home. Just trust the will of the Father. You don't know my husband or my wife. You better trust the will of the Father. Because it doesn't matter if you are surrounded by disheartened, being disheartened or discouraged or disappointed. God is still in control. And one thing that helps us now to understand that Jesus suffered in his humanity enabled him to understand our suffering 
in the midst of our pain. We are not alone. He is with us. And so, therefore, this is what has happened. That is the background. What about the details of the event? The event is just as important. What has taken place in the background, all this that is going on, all the commotion of the Passover, all the celebration of the Passover, all the conspiracy, all the influence, the, 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 the attendance of all these people, all this excitement, Mark takes a few moments to be able to reference an event that he feels is of most important. An event that illustrates genuine passion. My focus is, what is the origin of passion? And what does passion do, genuine passion do? And how do you sustain that passion? It's one thing to talk about it, but it's another, another thing to fully comprehend it and apply it in our lives. Therefore, this particular event I believe with all my heart is a focus on genuine passion. Notice what takes place. This event is recorded in two other Gospels. Write that down. You didn't know that, did you? It was in two other Gospels. It is mentioned in Matthew chapter 26 and in John chapter 12. And this helps us to create a more consistent picture of what really took place on that evening. But it is not to be confused with the event that is almost similar, but it is not the same that takes place in Luke. That is another one. Which indicates to us that it was customary in that time to anoint the, to honor the guests in a festive supper. Therefore, I have to conclude or infer that it was customary for Jesus to have been anointed not once, but many times. It is just selected that these two are mentioned here. You say, brother, you're stretching it a little bit, aren't you? No, I'm not. Psalms 23 says, you prepare in the pre table in the presence of my enemies, and what you anoint, my head. When God prepares a table in the presence of your enemies, you are a special guest. And he comes along and he anoints you in that moment that you're going through the most severe, difficult time of your life. He bathes you with an anointing that is surpasses any understanding. Jesus was anointed not once, not twice, but many times. Therefore, we can conclude by that by seeing this. But it is important that we fully understand that Matthew makes reference and John makes reference and also Mark. They're all compare. You can compare them and create a more consistent picture of what really took place that evening. What can we learn from John's explanation or John's remembrance of this event? We find out the woman's name. Her name is Mary. She is Lazarus and Martha's sister. That is consistent with what Mary has done throughout, at least of what we have learned about Mary. She was the one 
that chose not to wash dishes but sit at the feet of Jesus. She was the one that ran all the way to the tomb and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She was the one that by faith said, Lord, I know my brother will rise on the day of resurrection. That was the woman. But why does Mark does not mention her name? Because Mark doesn't want to focus on her. He wants to focus on what she is doing. So she remains anonymous so that you may be able to put yourself in that place. Would you be willing to lay it all down for him, knowing that he is about to give his life for you? Now, once in a while, say amen, because I think y'all done gone to sleep on me, okay? You know. John also tells us that it took place six days before the Passover. He also tells us that she poured a pound of perfume and wiped his feet. And he mentions one thing that is very important, that the house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. John doesn't mention that Jesus was, an, that that woman, Mary, anointed his head. He says that he, it gives the appearance that she was anoint, anointed his feet and dried them. Let me tell you, that was a lot of perfume for them feet. Even if he had a size 18 foot like Shaq or one of them, there's a lot of perfume. So we can exclude, we can remove that from the, that factor can be removed. So what really took place between Mark and John, we can say this, that the woman came in with a pint of this perfume and poured it on his head. And it was a pint that it went all the way down and it soaked his body, hallelujah. And it soaked his robe so much that it got down to his feet. And then she unraveled her hair and she began to dry his feet. And that was the picture that has taken place. She just didn't take a little oil and dab it here and dab it do it here and a dab it do it there. She wanted to know that if you're going to serve God, if you're going to search him, don't be dabbing into this. Get it all in or don't go in at all. We're in the passion for him all the way, all the way. Hallelujah. It tells us that the value confirms and agrees with Mark by saying that the value is 300, 300 denaria. I did some figuring. If the minimum wage, just to round out figures, now, don't get all excited here because you're always going to say, it's not that. It's got to go higher. It's got to go higher. We're not here to, 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 to discuss this. It's just, you know, figures, okay? Settle down. I worked for less than this, and I still made it. My father worked for less than this, and he still made it. Raised four kids. Didn't have help from the government. You ask me, well, times have changed. No, they haven't changed. They tell me that gas is cheaper now than it was before. You say, they ain't no what? Yes, it is. Basing it on $5 an hour. And since in the Western world, we only work eight hours. So our day ends in eight hours. With about 
two hours of breaks and lunch and everything else, but we say it is eight hours. We had never been in the restroom so long till we go to work. That's why when we come home, there ain't no need to buy no, no toiletries. No, there's no need. I've been, in the, I've been over there all day long. Oh, but raise them minimum wages. <laughs> Eight hours. At $5 an hour. $5 an hour. That's $40 a day. $40 times 300 days. $12,000. Is what she poured over Jesus, the equivalence of $12,000. That's like taking $12,000 and just letting it drop on Jesus. What? What you talking about? Offering time? There's one. Oh, we better not go there. We better leave that one alone. <laughs> John does mention that Judas is the one that objected. Mark doesn't. And there's a reason, because in John's mind, he wants to make sure who is the corporate of all that is taking place. Again, Mark is not interested on the details of the people. He is interested in the action, the act of that woman's passion. Matthew's account is thematic. I don't have much to say about Matthew. Matthew's account is thematic. It is, all, it is almost as similar to that of Mark. Many theologians and scholars believe that Matthew used Mark's events and added to it because his is thematic. He, is, it is, he uses it as a part of the narrative leading to the death of Jesus. That's why when you get to the end of Matthew, you begin to read that after this event, you have two long chapters leading to the death of or the death of Jesus, followed by one short chapter of the resurrection, and then concludes with the final chapter of the final commission to the disciples. So Matthew confirms or agrees with Mark that this has taken place. Why have I said all that? Let it be settled once and for all that between two and three witnesses, what I am about to tell you, happened I'm not here talking about a myth or a fable or a story that someone created it happened it is imperative that we fully understand it Matthew's account is similar to Mark John adds to Mark's account but Mark reveals this is very important Mark reveals the significant role that a person can have in God's kingdom. That is the reason why he does not mention names. Because he's focused at the deeper story. Details are over. You now have the details of the background. You now have the details of the event. Now let's get in to the deeper story of the event. And to do that, I must just point out three developing points regarding to what we have learned. The first one, 
it foreshadows the transformation of the Passover. Things are about to change. The ultimate lamb is about to be sacrificed. It foreshadows of everything that the Old Testament spoke about. That there will be a lamb that would come and would shed his blood and would take away the sin of the world. You've got to have that in your mind in order to understand passion. That is not in your mind, then passion is superficial. And so therefore the background is just as important as the event. Because in the back mind, what we in the background we have learned that the for it is foreshadowing the transformation of the Passover. Passover is not going to be the same anymore. The second thing that we have learned that this anonymous woman, now we know her name is Mary, that this anonymous woman's passion for Jesus is sandwiched between the conspiracy of the temple hierarchy and Judas' betrayal. And the third thing, the woman's overgenerous act, act underscores the seed for a total extravagant devotion to the Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ. Write this down because this is my argument. This is the thesis of the entire message. Oftentimes when Ron begins to write a paper, he will not mention the thesis at the beginning. You that are going to college, they're not going to tell you that. You're going to be looking for it in the first three pages. A lot of times those writers won't do it. You have to find it somewhere else. So therefore today, after the details of the background, after the details of the, that event that took place between the conspiracy and the betrayal, my argument is this, and write it down, passion without spiritual vision and prayer is superficial. Passion without spiritual vision and prayer and give me some license here. It's false and superficial. You see how that is the meaning of the deeper story of what has taken place. Why this woman, this individual, and I rather use the word this individual because some man might get a little offended because I say woman. This person, you see, in the eyes of God, there is no distinction of individuals. God doesn't move on people because of their sex or their gender, politically correct. We're all created in his image. All of us. So this person's image And person is representative of all of us, regardless if she is a woman or not. What we need to look at is what 
was the ingredients? What were the elements? What was she thinking? What did she see? What was that moved her to break through the crowd, so to speak, and take such a valuable jar of perfume and anoint him to bathe him, to saturate him. That is what we're looking for because she illustrates what true and genuine passion is all about. John and Matthew do not tell us. They don't mention it. Even Mark doesn't have an insight to what this woman or this person is doing. But Jesus does. Jesus reveals and opens to us what she is doing. I strongly believe that this woman was moving in a prophetic manner. And I use that word prophetic because she was being moved by the spirit of prophecy that was within her. For some apparent reason, it God desired in that moment to allow her to have a glimpse, a glimpse of ambiguity. And when I say a glimpse of ambiguity, she didn't have all the pieces connected, but it was sufficient for her soul to be able to see that something greater was about to take place. So much so that it gripped her soul and it took her to the place that she had never been before. She had seen things that eyes had not seen and ears had not heard the things that God is about to do. But in her spirit, in her soul, she was moved. Genuine passion starts with the source of all passion. And the source of all passion or the source of passion is spiritual insight to the counsel of God. We must see what God is doing. If if passion is going to be birthed within us, we must see what he is doing. But before we can see what he is doing, we must see what he has already done. That's what this woman was seeing. She was seeing what was about what Jesus was about to do. What was she seeing? She was seeing a suffering king. She was seeing a king that was about to lay down his life for her and for the world. She saw this with her prophetic eyes and so much so that it got a grip hold of her and she was not going to be the same person anymore. She saw all clearly the priceless blood of Jesus. She said, oh my God, oh my God, I will be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. The start of all passion is an insight to the works of Jesus Christ in your life. That has to be inside. It is revelation knowledge of God's plan of redemption for the entire 
human race. And this is the beautiful part. It is the spirit of adoption that gives an understanding to know him better. Spent $12,000 on a perfume to extravagantly demonstrate her passion. But she also saw that this gift, this extraordinary gift of God, the world was going to reject it and misunderstand it. Just as Judas and the disciples said, what a waste of money. The world today sees Calvary as a waste is a waste of blood and a waste of a body. No value should have been used for something else. Second, genuine passion is birthed by this revelation. This is the revelation of all revelations. It is of no avail to have revelation of the third heavens and demons and principalities if we don't have this revelation. The revelation of a suffering king, the revelation of the priceless blood of Jesus, the revelation of the, 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 the God's plan of redemption and reconciling the world, the revelation of the spirit of adoption that we are now his children, that is the profoundest revelation that is necessary to be able to birth passion. Because genuine passion, this passion, this revelation is birthed by a revelation that is more than a mental appreciation of truth. We get excited about what we know, think we know about God. That's why we are constantly looking for more knowledge and little understanding. The revelation that will grip, that will birth passion is a revelation that goes beyond than the mental appreciation of truth. But it is a spiritual insight to the full counsel of what God is doing. And when one sees what God is doing, it will stir up that soul. You won't be able to sleep. You won't be able to eat. You won't be able to think about your, about one's problems. Once this revelation, 
this insight of the counsel of God gets a hold of your soul and it grips you. It is a passion that surpasses all understanding. You won't be able to explain it. You won't be even able to write it down in a book. Hallelujah. It'll be so personal that it will stir you up. A passion that will manifest itself in action. Not just in talk, but in doing. Putting forth the fruit. See, genuine passion will always bear fruit. Because the fruit of the Spirit, it says. So that passion will birth forth fruit. Fruit that no law, nothing, there is no condemnation, nothing will stop it. And if it tries, you'll step right over it. What kind of passion is displayed in this woman's actions when she poured that perfume over, that pint of perfume over his head and it went all, it, it trickled down. And it didn't go down, trickle down economics, let me let you know. It came down. Soaked his robe, his body. I have anointing oil. That one that has a perfume. When I start praying, I put it on for some apparent reason. I don't know, it's Yes, it's a personal ritual. People, you do different things. You know, those people that pray, they're crazy anyway. They, they, they're crazy. They, they, they go to a world that, that, that's, that's, that's crazy, so they get crazy on you. They just get crazy. If you don't understand what crazy means, it, locos, están locos, you know, locos, man. It's a ritual that I do. I, I, I have anointing oil, and it has this perfume. And I wash my hands on it because I want the Lord to know that when I raise my hands that, that he would receive the fragrance. That he would receive my prayers as a fragrance unto him. And that's what was happening to Jesus. He wants a passion that will release a fragrance to the world. And it they, he was bathed in it so much that even though he was beaten, scarred, nailed to a cross, he could still smell the fragrance. He could still smell the fragrance. He could still smell it. He could still smell the fragrance. She poured it on him. So much that it ran down to his feet. Now you and I think that he was sitting down like you're sitting down. No, they custom, their custom was to sit down and lean. 
And then their feet would be extended, and so it soaked. And when it got to his feet, she unraveled her hair. Women in that time didn't do that. They never unraveled their hair, particularly in public. The only time they unraveled it was in the presence of their husband. They unraveled it. And she unraveled that hair and she began to dry his feet. An act, genuine passion, birth from a spiritual insight beyond a mental appreciation of truth will birth within a soul acts of abandonment to self. That what she did, unravel the hair. She was saying, I am abandoning myself. And I am losing myself in you. There is a... Illustration that I heard once from a preacher. It's not mine. I, I give credit to who credit is due. The good thing is I don't remember his name, so I can steal it now. So, He said there was a missionary to the American Indians. And so, of course, he brought the gospel to the American Indians, and they didn't, he didn't have a pulpit. He had a table. So he would put a table and put a Bible, and of course, and you have church, you have to have an offering plate. So he had an offering plate too. And so he began to preach, and of course, there was conversions, and first the women, then the men. It got so intimidating that the chief decided to go check it out. So the chief came in, and he stood in the back listening to this preacher. And so finally, surprisingly, one day, that chief walks to the front, takes out his tomahawk lays it on the table and says, me chief, give tomahawk to God. That preacher didn't know what to say, but he had to say it. God don't want your tomahawk. Chief got upset, grabbed it, walked out. Came back, listened to the message. This time he went out and he grabbed his horse. Brought, didn't shoot the horse, just put the, said, me, chief, give tomahawk, horse, to God. Preacher said, God don't want your horse. Chief walked out with his tomahawk, walked out with his horse, went back and then came back in later. This time he had his feathers. He walks all the way to the front, puts the tomahawk, puts the feathers, puts the horse, and he says, me, chief, give tomahawk, give feathers, give horse to God. Preacher said, chief, God don't want your tomahawk. Now, with an attitude, I don't know if it's right or not, but it's an attitude. Don't want your tomahawk. Don't want your stinking feathers. No, just your feathers. <laughs> and don't want your horse. 
He walked back out, upset. This time he comes in, he clears the table, and he lays down on that table and he says, me, chief, give chief to God. It's time we, we chiefs give chief to God. We're walking around like a bunch of chiefs in here. You know, we should all be little Indians ready to serve God. No, but me chief, give chief to God. No, 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 no. This woman said true, genuine passion demonstrates it with acts of total abandonment to self. Second, an act of servitude and total dependence. And with this we conclude. How do we know she demonstrated an act of servitude and total dependence? This blew my mind. Blew my mind when I saw it. Because prophetically, she was doing exactly what Jesus would be doing on that night when he got up and put a, ta a towel around him and washed the feet of the disciples. When you and I have a full insight, a clear insight to the full counsel of God, We will abandon self and we will wipe his feet with our tears and dry them. Now, if somebody don't get up here with the piano, y'all fixing to hang me right, right, right now. Y'all fixing to say, that, yeah, bro, that's enough. That's enough. And I'm too young to die. <laughs> what was my argument? What was my thesis? Do you remember it? The thesis was passion without spiritual vision and prayer is false and superficial. I ask you to forgive me as false is too strong, but it's deceptive. That is the context of what I'm referring to, implying by using the word false. It is deceiving you. It is deceiving the person to think they have passion without spiritual insight to the full counsel or to the counsel of what God is doing. But notice what I said. Without prayer. Without prayer. It is superficial. You know why? Listen to what I'm about to tell you. Ultimately, genuine passion will grip the soul to go to the altar of pleading by laying hold of what the soul has seen until that desire has been 